can be seated. Today we're arriving at the heart of this series that we're doing this fall on the gospel of God out of Romans chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. We've considered the source of the gospel for the last two weeks together. The source of course being God himself and we've looked at his faithfulness, trustworthiness and his consistency at the way in which he's preserved the truth of the gospel from himself to us through the scriptures. And now we get to turn today to the heart of the matter, really, to the content of the gospel. I recognize we come from many different places to gather here for worship and probably come for many different reasons as well. But I, I wonder if I were just to ask you the question, what is the gospel? What your answer might be. What is the good news at the heart of the Christian faith? If you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus, this is the good news upon which your life is built. This is the foundation, the center, the core of everything that you think about the world and about yourself and about what life is for. And if you're here and you're investigating the Christian faith and considering the claims of Jesus, then this gospel is at the center of the proclamation that we make to the world and to you. And it becomes that which you are to wrestle with and consider and ultimately to yield to, and even in the words of scripture, to obey. So what is the gospel? Now I'm hazarding something in this message by titling, titling it the content of the gospel because any of you who know your New Testament will know that the entire New Testament addresses this question. And it would be right for us to pick up any passage, not only of the New, but also of the Old Testament and begin to proclaim the good news of God. But Paul, again, in this introductory remark to what is probably the greatest letter ever written, does give us a, a quick overview and summary here in verses 3 and 4 of the introduction to the letter that he wrote to the church in Rome. Remember, about 25 years after Jesus lived and was crucified and was raised, this is when Paul is writing to the church in the capital of the empire in Rome. And he addresses this question of the content. And he says this, if you look with me at the text... Remember, picking up from verse 1, set up, he says he's an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then as we looked at last week, he promised this beforehand through the apostles, through the prophets, sorry, in the Holy Scriptures. And now he says what it's about. He says concerning his son. So I'm not sure what your answer was to the question that I asked just a few minutes ago. But if any of you just simply said, Jesus, you were right. And if, in fact, if you're ever stumbling when you're in a conversation with somebody about the basics of Christianity and they say, well, what's it all about? Or what's the gospel that you preach? You can do no wrong if you just say Jesus. Because that is, in essence, the answer. He is the content of the gospel. And that's what Paul says. This is the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son. But what does he say about Jesus? And that's what we'll look at in these two verses together this morning. A lot could be said about Jesus. A lot is said about Jesus. That he was a great man. A great model of what life is like. That he taught us tremendous ethics about how to live in a life of love with others. That he practiced nonviolence and was a model for people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. All of those things would be true, of course. But they're really not at the heart of what we proclaim about his son, God's son, at the heart of our gospel. 
after a couple of qualifiers, which we will look at, I want to go to the end of verse 4 and just continue the thought here with me. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, or really the Messiah, our Lord. Concerning his son, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. The gospel is fundamentally and firstly, if I can use that word, about the declaration that Jesus is the son of God concerning his son and that as the son, he is the world's true Lord. In this very Jewish context, we have to remember that Paul himself was a, a faithful Jew, excelling, he says, beyond his contemporaries in the way that he understood to be the truth. And then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he was transformed forever. But he's writing in a context in which Judaism was very known. And the, the phrase, the son of God, would have been understood firstly, at least, as a phrase that implies that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, the coming king, the world's true Lord. Of course, son of God means more. It means more even in this text as well that early Christians began to understand that this term applied to Jesus meant that Jesus not only is the Messiah, the true king of Israel and therefore the king of the world, but that he is also sharing in the divine identity of his father. That he is in his embodiment, the embodiment of God returning to his people. And so son of God goes much further and deeper than simply the Jewish king, but it begins there. This is a term about messiahship and Jesus is the Messiah and the Lord. And this is the good news at the heart of the Christian faith, at the heart of the gospel is this reality that Jesus is Lord. I would say that is the dominant note of the amazing music of the gospel of God. Now, let me be clear uh, for a moment. Some of you may be quibbling with what I just said. If you were to say that the gospel is about God's grace, about his deep love for sinners, about his mercy, about the fact that he redeems people out of bondage and brings them into life, about the reality that he gives us not just life for the day, but life that will overflow and be abundant for all of eternity, eternal life, as the gospel of John calls it, then I would say to you, you're right. These are all deep realities at the center of what God has done and come to do in his son Jesus. They are all deep parts of the truth of the gospel. And this gospel, by the way, has broad implications and ramifications for our lives personally, sociopolitically, and even cosmically. It is large and grand in its scope and its reach. Having said that and affirmed those things, at the heart of the New Testament proclamation, and we see this, for example, throughout the book of Acts, is this declaration that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. Let's go to the first sermon ever preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. The first Christian sermon. You do, do you know where I am? Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, the Spirit has come. Peter stands up, now emboldened by the Spirit of God, to declare the good news to those who are watching in Jerusalem. He finishes this first sermon by saying this, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. 
the first Christian sermon drives to this point that God has made Jesus, the one who was on the Roman cross not long ago, he has raised him from the dead and made him both Lord and Messiah. He is king. Now, if this is at the heart of the gospel, why is it good news? Why is it good news? And to answer that, we need to look at the first of the two details in between the two parts that I've already pointed out in verses three and four. Paul says concerning his son, and then he gives the first detail, who was descended from David according to the flesh. This phrase explicitly links Jesus to the Old Testament narrative in a way that taps into a deep reservoir of meaning. Paul is making an explicit claim that Jesus is the long-awaited heir to David's throne. We looked at this a bit even last week. Paul also is not alone in this affirmation. It runs throughout the New Testament itself. Remember before Jesus is born in Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to Mary, she says, the son to whom you will give birth will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Or we could go to John chapter 6, when Jesus has just fed the 5,000 miraculously, uh, multiplying the loaves and the fish. And what do they want to do in verse 19 of chapter 6? Do you remember? After they'd seen this display of miraculous power, they come and they want to make him king by force. They recognize this is the one who is coming. We want him to be on the throne. Or what happens when he enters into Jerusalem in that symbolic act? Harkening back to a prophecy in the Old Testament when he's riding on a donkey into Jerusalem in Mark chapter 11. What do they shout out before him as he comes? Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They knew what was going on. And when, when Paul says in verse 3, it's concerning his son who was descended from the flesh, uh, from, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He's tapping into that narrative. Jesus is the king to come. And this is inherent in the understanding of the word gospel itself. Our word gospel is used climactically in the Old Testament in two places in the, in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 40 and also in Isaiah 52. And these are passages that declare the return of God to his people and the reign of God over his people. Just hear them briefly in Isaiah 40. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news, that is gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, O herald, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. God has come. And he's come and then he goes on. I won't read this, but in the next couple of verses to talk about God shepherding his flock and coming to bring rescue and renewal and provision for them. What great news to those who were in exile under foreign rule. And then in chapter 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, that is gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news, gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God reigns. Again, what great news to those who were in exile, those who were under foreign power, those who were suffering at the hands of their enemies. God was coming back to reign and to rule, and this is what gospel meant to them. The Hebrew word that is translated by the Greek word that carries itself into the New Testament is the word from which we get gospel. Euangelomai, uh, or euangelizomai, is the word from which we get evangel, or evangelism, or evangelical. 
All that word really means is that we are a people who are defined by this reality of the gospel, the good news of God. That God is coming to reign, has come to reign, in fact. The Hebrew word behind that just means to bring or to announce good news. And the good news that's being announced is the return of God, the reign of God, and the redemption of God. Good news when somebody comes to reign. The ancients understood this very well. There was an inscription from 9 BC about Caesar. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to Rome where Caesar lives and reigns. And the inscription reads in this way about the birth of Caesar Augustus. He was a savior for us and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the God, they're speaking about Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, euangelion, which were because of him. And it goes on, the inscription, to say that he had done so much good that he did not leave, quote, any hope of improvement in the things which are. Gospel meant a ruler had arrived and the world and your life and mine was beginning to change. That's what the ancient empire understood in the Greco-Roman world about the word gospel. And we understand this too. After a presidential election, there's a group of Americans, at least, who are pretty excited about the results of the day before. And they're excited about this person taking the, the office of president in the United States, but not, just, not so much just excited about this person getting into that office, but about the platform upon which this person ran for office. And the fact that this new president will enact policies and bring about certain realities in the world that will change the way in which we live. Immigration reform or tax breaks or the appointment of certain kinds of justices and so on. This is what people get excited about when their king takes office. And so the reason this is good news, that Jesus is descended from David according to the flesh, that he is taking up the throne of his father, David, is because of all that this signifies that God is doing in the world through his reign. We read from Isaiah chapter 11 earlier in the service. And here we hear, uh, we, we learn about this uh, shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Well, those of you know that Jesse is David's father. And so the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse is one who's in David's line to fulfill the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 that there would be one sitting on his throne forever. And this one who comes brings about justice and righteousness and even a, a renewal of all of creation where the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, where the wolf will dwell with the lamb, where the, the, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The promise when the king of David comes is that creation will be renewed, that righteousness and justice will be established, that peace will come and that flourishing will exist as, as a result of his reign and his rule. That's why this is good news. When we declare the lordship of Jesus, we are declaring with Christians from the beginning that all of this that was promised is coming to pass. That the creation is being renewed. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5 when somebody meets Jesus? Behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, he says. New things have burst and come about. God is moving in a new way to establish righteousness and justice and peace. And his kingdom has come. So Jesus announces the coming of the kingdom as he begins his earthly ministry. And when God's kingdom comes, things will begin to happen that are exactly what we long for as his creatures. That's why this is good news. It's good news that Jesus is king because of all that God is doing in and through Jesus. 
A working definition that I've used of the gospel for many years is like this. Jesus is Lord of the whole world. And through him, God is reconciling all things and making all things new. In other words, Jesus is king. And by virtue of his death and resurrection, his inaugural act to establish the kingdom, he is reconciling, bringing true forgiveness. Reconciling all things and making all things new. This is incredibly good news, by the way, at the heart of our faith. Now, it was one thing for the Christians to claim this, to proclaim it, to celebrate it. But there's a real question that we have to address. How could they do this when Jesus had been publicly seen and observed as being crucified on a Roman cross? Kings didn't die at the hands of their enemies. They conquered their enemies. And that brings us then to the beginning of verse 4 in our text. The second piece that Paul leaves here before declaring Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, and he was declared to be the son of God in power. According to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead. Declared or marked out to be the son of God in power. That is to say that the resurrection is the great event and good news that ensures that Jesus is not in fact a failed Messiah who died at the hands of his enemies, suffering the same fate as many would-be Messiahs in the first and second centuries. Rather, he was raised in power by the spirit of holiness. That's an interesting line there, that the spirit was present. Where was the spirit at the beginning of the first creation? He was hovering over the face of the waters, remember? And he had agency in God's bringing about light and order in a world of chaos. Where is the spirit at the beginning of the new creation? The first act, by the way, of the new creation is the resurrection of Jesus' fleshly body from the dead. And Paul says here that it was by the spirit of holiness that he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. The spirit brings and breathes life into God's world. After God formed the man from the dust, he breathed on him. That same word, breath or wind or spirit, and Adam comes to life. The dry bones in Ezekiel 37, God breathes upon them. The spirit comes upon them and they come to life. That should sound familiar when Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And then he says he must be born of water and of the spirit. Spirit brings the gift of life. And the Spirit breathed life now upon to Jesus' dead body, hovering over the chaos of the tomb to begin and establish the world of the new creation. That first sermon of Peter's, if we could summarize it in a nutshell, we looked at the last words, it was this. You killed Jesus. God raised him up. And now he's both Lord and Messiah. This Jesus that you crucified, he's no longer dead, but he's the living, reigning king of all. And what's so beautiful is that having come to know and see Jesus as the risen king, by the powerful event of the resurrection, Paul and the other apostles and the earliest Christians, and we still today, came to understand that the death of Jesus on the Roman cross was not something to be hushed about. 
something to hide, something to marginalize, but rather this was something to glory in, to proclaim and to declare so much so that Paul can say, when I came among you, Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul will say again and again, we preach Christ and him crucified. It's the cross of Jesus that Paul begins to glory in as he, de as he declares the gospel to the world. This cross was not some defeat, but rather it was the moment in which all that God had promised was coming to pass in which the king would become truly victorious over the powers of sin and evil and death. And the devil himself was defeated, as, Paul will, as Jesus will say in John chapter 12. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out at the moment of the cross is the moment of his victory over the great powers of darkness. This was not his moment of defeat, as it looked like to the watching world. That's why this was a stumbling block to Jews, why it was folly to Gentiles. But to those who are being saved, this is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross is the source of our power, our enthusiasm, our joy, our victory, our release. Not only does Jesus defeat sin with a capital S in power, but Jesus overcomes sin with a lowercase s, the sin of you and of me, the sins that we commit day by day, the sins that render us dirty and unfit and unclean to be in the presence of a holy God, the sins that make us the objects of wrath. Jesus at the cross atones for those sins and he propitiates the wrath of God, which is righteous and just and holy, that we might have new life and be liberated and free. And come to life like him. That's the story of the gospel. That's the power of the cross. That's why this is at the center of our proclamation. So perhaps we should say the proclamation of the gospel is in fact Jesus is Lord. But we should always clarify as Peter did on that first sermon. That Jesus is the one who was crucified and raised. Because it's the events of the cross and resurrection that liberate humanity. And that unleash all that is good upon this world under his now present and ongoing reign. We glory in this cross. So when Paul is asked, or when Paul's writing the Corinthians, he says, look, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? He says this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. His death, burial, and resurrection were the fulfillment of all that had come before. It was in accordance with the scriptures. And it is at the center of our gospel proclamation. Paul goes on to explore this in much greater detail in the letter that he writes to the Romans. In chapter 3 in particular, he deals with the way in which the death of Christ is salvific and saving and redeeming for you and for me. And he goes on in chapter 8 and further to talk about how the death of Christ, chapter 6, 7, and 8, is the means by which sin is overthrown. Death is overcome and we've been raised to enjoy now a new kind of life as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And in Romans 8, he talks about how even that work of God at the cross begins to bring about the renewal of all creation, which is groaning, longing, for the redemption of the sons of God. It's an amazing gospel that has tremendous expansion and it is great news. And I want you to know this morning that we have great news to share with the world. Don't ever let the opposition to the Christian faith, which exists strongly in our culture, make you timid or shy or embarrassed even if you're talking to people that have lots of degrees behind their name 
who are opposed to Jesus, we have incredibly good news to share with the world. That Jesus is king and God is working his purposes for renewal and redemption and reconciliation through the power of his king and his spirit at work in the world. This is something to stand up and shout about. This is something to stand up and declare, to live into. I want to bring this more to a close by just just looking at three things briefly about the reality of this gospel. The first thing that I want to say is it's, and they all begin with P, which I don't usually do. But the first thing to say is this gospel is personal. To go back to that day on Pentecost when Peter Peter preaches that first sermon, you might remember after he says that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified, that the next thing that happens is he issues an invitation to everybody who's listening to him proclaim the truth about what God has done in Jesus and who Jesus actually is today, living and reigning and ruling as the king of all the earth. He invites them to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. This gospel is personal. It's always issued with a call to hit you personally and me personally. It's always issued because the king wants you to be his subject. He wants you to bow the knee to his lordship and rule. He wants to give you genuine and true life. And this gospel about Jesus being king changes our lives in the day to day. And there are many sitting here right now who could speak and testify to the real change that's going on in their lives because of this king's work in their lives from the day that they bowed the knee to him. It's a personal gospel. And the idea of Jesus, the reality of Jesus being king means very plainly that there is no other king. There is no other life giver and calls us out of the way in which we serve false gods who promise deliverance but only enslave to come and serve the one true and living God who will lead us as we walk with him into green pastures and beside still waters and give us life. It is personal. It's also political. Some of you just got nervous. (laughs) I don't mean it's partisan. That's a really important distinction. But to say that Jesus is is king is to make a deeply political statement. Remember where Paul is sending this letter? He's sending it to the center of the Greco-Roman world, to Rome, where Caesar lives. How was Caesar known in that day among his subjects throughout his empire? Caesar is Lord. When the earliest Christians took over this statement and said, Jesus is Lord, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, I think it's the earliest baptismal confession, Jesus is Lord. They were making a direct confrontation with the present Lord of their day, and it was dangerous to do so. It was a deeply political statement to say, no, Caesar, you are not the Lord of my life. Jesus, you are the Lord, and I will serve and obey him before I serve and obey any other authority. Now, the earliest Christians did say, well, God has established authorities and governments for his good purposes, and they would have been good subjects to the degree that they could in the empire, even as perverted and gross and built on violence and oppression as that empire was. That's Romans 13. Paul gets to that later in this letter. But they would say there is a line. Every other authority is secondary to the one true primary authority of our lives. And to him and to him alone, we will give allegiance, even if that means going to our death. And so many Christians in the earliest centuries did just that. Because this was a political statement. Jesus is king. You are not. And I will obey and worship him exclusively, even as I offer service to you. 
It's a dangerous statement to make. And it's still dangerous. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, that danger is so much more clear and evident. But it's still even dangerous for us. Jesus is Lord. It's a political statement. And the third thing I want to say about this is it's powerful. Deeply powerful. That's why we should never be ashamed. That's why when Paul closes his introduction, and we'll get there later in November, he says, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of this reality that Jesus, the crucified and raised one, is now the living Lord of all the universe. Because there's power in this proclamation. There's power, and we've seen that power expand from a tiny little seed to grow into a large tree on which the birds of the air can nest on the branches. That's Jesus speaking. This, this gospel, as it's proclaimed throughout the world, begins to grow, and people find their hearts strangely warm. They find their lives turned upside down. They find renewal from the inside, working its way out into the way that they live. And this gospel begins to grow and expand throughout the world. And it has done this for 2,000 years, beginning to change people's lives, to change communities, to change cities. There is power in this gospel. Maybe you haven't thought of Christianity as good news in a while. Maybe you've been going through the motions in some ways, doing church things, having devotions. All of these things are great but perhaps losing touch with this radical declaration at the heart of our faith that there is truly a king over all the, all the world whose name is Jesus. That in him, God was coming back to his people and that all the promises of the scriptures of the Old Testament were coming true in him. That there is such a thing as new creation life and we can have a part in it and long for it to come. But I want you to know that the news that was so radical and countercultural and revolutionary and world changing back then is the same news today. Jesus is on the throne. It's news about the past. He did die. He was raised from the dead. He did ascend to the Father's right hand. It's news about the present. He is currently living and reigning as the ruler and Lord over all. And he longs to be recognized as such by all. And he is, it's about the future too. He is coming back to consummate the victory that he won on the cross. And this changes everything for your life and for mine. We gather under his rule to begin to live out and work out the consequences of that rule in our lives. In the way that we live and love and study and worship and pray and care for one another. It's all about this gospel. This news that changes everything. About a year and a half ago, and I'll close with this, I mentioned the liberation of the prisoners from the Japanese internment camp in China during World War II. Langdon Gilkey writes about his two and a half years in this internment camp in his book, Shantung Compound. And here's how he describes those last days. We were a people waiting for only one thing, news of the progress of the war and its approaching end. And then he goes on to say they were kept in the dark Largely, but the news would seep in through locals that they had interactions with as, as prisoners in the town nearby. And then one day, Gilkey describes his encounter with a man, fellow prisoner named Albert Hoskins. Albert says to him, can you keep a secret? 
And Gilkey's kind of annoyed, and then he finally agrees that he can. And then Hoskin continues and says, all right, hang on, because it's big. And then he paused, and then he said this, the war is over. Gilkey describes his reaction in this way. I can still feel the shock, the thrill, the tremendous excitement mingled with incredulous unbelief when I heard this. Could it be true? Was the world that good? Was the war really over? The worries gone? A new life possible? With these thoughts, a wave of sheer joy surged through me. How completely certain kinds of news that a loved one has died, that a war has begun, or that a war is over can stop one's wor one world and begin another. Nothing one is doing today will, because of it, be relevant or possible tomorrow. Aware of it, one grasps at the sheer contingency of things, how they and all their works can so quickly pass away. The minute I heard the news, he says, the whole camp looked, felt, and even smelled different. Now it was over, and all that was left was the getting out, and much that had worried us for the future receded quickly into the past. How do you think those earliest disciples felt? When the women ran back and said, he's not here, he is risen. The proclamation at the heart of our gospel is that Jesus is the crucified and risen king. And it has, in fact, changed everything. And it is the best news that any one of us could ever hear and could ever share. Every single neighbor that's represented in this room to you and to me this is great news for them. It's great news that you're not king. It's great news that I'm not king. It's great news that God is king in the person of his son, Jesus. And he's living and he's ruling. And we're waiting for him to come back. Let's pray. God, our Father, we worship you. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We declare that you, in fact, are the king, Lord and Messiah, crucified and raised. I ask simply that you would awaken us again to the astonishing and shocking reality of your resurrection and your current reign. And I pray that you would inform and define all of our lives through this reality that you are, in fact, Lord. Empower us, we pray, to declare this in word, without shame, and in deed, by taking up our cross and following you, Jesus. We pray that you would be glorified in our midst. Amen.